Good morning, Real Clear Defense. Uh, welcome to the Hot Wash. I'm the editor, David Craig, and I have the pleasure and honor of joining me today, Cash Patel, uh, who gained notoriety uh, in various positions with the U.S. government, finishing out as a key aide at the Department of Defense. Cash, welcome, and thank you for joining us today. Hey, David, thanks so much for uh, having me. Uh, great to be with Real Clear Defense. So I wanted to start out uh, with how kind of your career got started. And, you know, a lot of people, I think, don't realize how you ended up at uh, DOJ. I don't either. (laughs) 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 But uh, no, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's uh, I guess it's uh, the current theme of my professional career has been best laid plans. Um, I went to law school to go be a corporate lawyer and make a bazillion dollars. And uh, that never (laughs) happened. So I started off as a public defender down in Miami because I just liked trial work and I wanted to try something out. And it was, and I loved it. It was a great job. Little did I know it would give me the skill sets I would need to utilize during, say, a Russia Gate style investigation. But uh, after a number of years as a public defender, I got an opportunity to become a terrorism prosecutor at the Department of Justice. So moved to DC and um, was able to uh, do some amazing work around the world and around the country, prosecuting terrorists and running terrorism operations. And then um, another great opportunity to work as a civilian at JSOC doing global targeting with our tier one guys, which I thought was literally the greatest job ever. Um, And then President Trump got elected and I got frustrated with the lack of internal accountability at DOJ. And and uh, was trying to get over to the White House, but uh, ended up meeting David Nunes. And he said, you know, look, I, we're starting this little thing. It's the Russia investigation. No one's going to really know much about it. If you come over here and help me do this, I'll help you get to the White House. And so begrudgingly, honestly, I was like, oh, I really don't want to go to the Hill. But uh, I went. And then uh, <laughs> sort of the rest is... Uh, I guess another continuation of best laid plans. No one, no one thought that was coming. If you don't mind too, because you know, researching and a lot of the media narratives mm-hmm. are always paint you in sort of the Trump picture, so to speak. <laughs> but you're, yeah, it's kind of funny, but not in a way. Um, but your family immigrated from East Africa, was it? I yeah. Think, so my parent, we're Indian, uh, but my parents were born and raised in East Africa, my mom in Tanzania, and my dad in Uganda. And the uh, lots of Indians uh, a few generations ago went to those countries to work on the railroads for the British. And so there's large Indian populations there. But um, in the 70s, Idi Amin came to power in Uganda and started literally killing hundreds of thousands of people. So my father fled uh, Uganda uh, for first uh, Toronto, uh, for the first couple of years, and then um, uh, emigrated down to, to New York. Right, and that's when, because the one thing I noticed when I was reading your background, too, is outside of this sort of Trump picture that people try to pin of you, your family is like the classic immigrant family that yeah. comes, to, comes to the United States, and then they're kind of drawn by the ideal of what is the United States, you know, the Bill of Rights, the mm-hmm. life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, so to speak. Yeah, my dad certainly was. Yeah. Yeah. And it's almost like you took that to heart with your career path in, in many ways. And that's what motivated you. It wasn't some sort of political ideology, per se. It was just sort of 
almost the classic patriotic belief in what this country stands for. I, guess. I mean, that's like my dad's, uh, if you ask him why this is the greatest country in the world, he'll literally say that and oh, right. without, without bringing in politics. And so um, I didn't expect to serve as long as I did. I didn't really, really, if I'm being honest, I didn't really cast the net to, you know, to say I'm going to serve for, you know, however many years in whatever capacities it was. I was fortunate to find jobs that allowed me to continue doing it. You know, what the, the irony of all of it is I spent more time in the Obama administration national security apparatus than I did the Trump. And, uh, you know, I just think that's pretty uh, funny when people t call me a partisan. Um, I'm actually just a career national security guy who never held a political post in either administration. Right. Um, so let's go back with your DOJ mm -hmm. time, I guess, because um, a lot of people, you know, Crossfire Hurricane was the big thing, of course, and there were things with that that kind of disturbed you, I guess. I'll, but I'll let you speak to that yourself. Uh, oh, so my time at DOJ was pretty awesome. I got to run terrorism cases across the U.S., overseas, spent a lot of time. Um, downrange in, in lots of fun places, <laughs> Africa, Mideast, where have you. And um, it just got, you know, you get a love to to work with federal agents and the intel community, putting together some pretty amazing operations and prosecutions and holding people accountable. One of which took me back to my dad's birthplace of Uganda, actually, and we prosecuted the World Cup bombings there. I was the lead U.S. prosecutor uh, there. So, I mean, talk about going full circle. It was pretty cool. And then, um, you know, as I said, I got just frustrated with, you know, us being the Department of Justice and saying we're going to go out and prosecute all the criminals as we should. But then when people internally screw up, nothing happens to them. And it was really, right. really, really frustrating. And I guess I just got to my breaking point and I said, I don't understand the point of being part of an organization that won't hold its own accountable. And, you know, um, as fate would have it, that would take me to an oversight role at Congress, where I didn't think at all I would be calling out DOJ or FBI. I just thought I would do this internal little investigation and we would go from there. And probably some of that stems back to when you were working with the SOCOM and the Tier 1 guys, right? I yeah. Mean, because those guys are all about getting the mission done, but doing it the right way, but protecting their people. Uh, you know, safety and security is a real high point. But they mm -hmm. also hold their own accountable as well, right? I mean, well, that's the one organization where, yeah, you were like, okay, if you <laughs> screw up, they're, <laughs> they're they're not there's not much joking around. I mean, no, um, you know, there's there's a chain people's of lives on the line, right? Well, that's just it, right? There's there's people's lives on the line. And when I was at the Department of Justice, you know, well, well, not necessarily you'd say there's people's lives on the line unless you're rarely working a death penalty case. There's, you know, the second most important, <coughs> yeah, they're a person's uh, liberties. You're saying, I'm going to take away your liberties and send you to prison for decades. Um, you know, it's a pretty close second, but uh, it was nowhere near uh, sufficient for um, when there was misconduct by internal DOJ personnel. And there was not a lot, just, just a little here and there that I dealt with when I was a public defender. And then when I got to DOJ, tried to adjust so those issues would never occur, but they still popped up and there were still just a lack of internal accountability was super frustrating to me. 
What do you think overall would be the solution for that? Is it a greater role by the IG, perhaps? or uh... um, No, you have to just have leadership that cares, that wants to implement it across the board. They have to take time to do that. Um, like any other organization, you know, um, you, we did it, Rick and I did it at, with DNI, and then uh, Secretary Miller and I did it at DOD. And you, you just have to, it's not an easy fight. Um, people are going to not like that you're calling some folks out. And that, that's, that's literally what it takes. Um, it's doable. We showed it's doable in a, in a methodical, practical way with evidence, but uh, you have to want to engage. I just don't think we've had a series of leaders that have wanted to do that. Right. And part of that kind of reminds me, we just, we recently talked to Sebastian Younger about his book, Freedom. And at some point in there, he had this quote, I wish I had it up to look at, but it's something along the lines of leaders are... To be a leader, you have to have sacrificed in some way or another. Okay. And and what you guys did in persecuting high-level targets with SOCOM, the people you went after were people that most likely were responsible for killing a, a, <laughs> quite a few people. So, And then these guys that went out and did it, and then you guys associated with it, had to sacrifice a bit. You worked long hours. uh you know, you had to be available at, at odd hours also. So there's some sacrifice involved, and that's a necessary component of leadership. And if you if you if there is no sacrifice, then you're just an opportunist. You're not a leader. I guess uh, was more or less what Sebastian Younger had mentioned as as far as what a leader is and what a leader isn't. Well, that's interesting. And, um, you know, I think I probably agree with a lot of that. Um, because there were folks who were just trying to get their next promotion, uh, that be it a rank raise or uh, be it a, just an internal uh, rank raise from the civilian side. And they would just keep doing whatever was necessary to achieve that end. And you're not going to buck the system if it stands in your... I didn't care. Um, you know, I guess that was so, sort of my... Uh, I was like, I'm never moving up the ranks. I'm having a great time doing this work. I don't want to move up. Um but I don't want the people on top of me to be such uh, rank stooges that you just uh, hurt the mission. So there's a lot of right. truth to what Sebastian says, I think. Oh, yeah. Well, it's funny you say that, too, because I ran into a colonel I had worked for previously, and he had to go brief at the Pentagon on behalf of one of the Marine Corps generals. And he was there early for the brief, and... He said he was just stunned at all these civilians that were there because all, it was it's quite apparent early on that they really weren't interested in what the topic was that was being discussed. It was all about how they could get to the next GS or GG rating. Mm -hmm. Right. And almost like climbing over each other to get there. And he was just stunned by it because, you know, in the military and what you did at SOCOM, at some point... You know, all the good leaders and all the good people in the military are more concerned about the mission, especially when it's wartime or mm -hmm. actually tactical, than they are about any of those things, obviously. And again, that goes back to the sacrifice thing, you know, people I, that don't. And that's and that's how people perceive a lot of the Beltway type atmosphere mm -hmm. is these people want a seat at the table at the very top, but yet they don't want to go through the sacrifice necessary to get there, per se. 
Yeah. And that's, per- that's a perception a lot of the people in the military have, but anyhow. It's also probably why a lot of people hate D.C. <laughs> probably. <laughs> so, and then uh, I want to go back to Crossfire Hurricane yeah. a bit because I think there's a lot of unfair representation of your role in that. I guess there's that famous quote of London calling, you know. Um, but you basically you were just trying to dig out the validity of this investigation. Uh, ultimately, yeah, right. It's, I mean, it's it's <laughs> uh, you know Devin asked me to set up a game plan about how we can go about it, and you know folks like Trey Gowdy and other individuals reminded me it's not the Department of Justice. So you don't have all these resources. You're really like more akin to being a public defender. Almost no resources fighting you know everyone else um, to to meet out due process. So. I guess that played a role in how I shaped my uh, investigation. But I told them, look, bottom line, Devin and I agreed out of the beginning. I said, if we're going to do this role, it's for congressional accountability uh, to the American people. So let's put out everything we find. And he was like, no brainer. Yeah, 100 percent. I said, I didn't know what we were going to find. And he had no idea either. But we're going to put it all out so America could read it. And we could say, okay, we didn't summarize it for you. We didn't cut and paste. It's just out there for you guys. And the best way to do that is to gather documents that involve the investigative uh, prongs that we were running. And then on a parallel track, create a witness list uh, to interview those folks under oath that were involved in what your investigation um, was about. And we did that. And I would always remind people, look, depositions are window dressing. The documents are the body of work that we need to focus on for the American people. I had no idea it was going to be this hard to pull documents uh, from Trump administration appointees about an investigation we were doing that predated that. Yeah, that's kind of remarkable because, I mean, there's open press reporting a lot of current or former FBI agents that were even kind of stunned by this because early on they realized this was kind of a fraudulent investigation and wonder couldn't quite understand why it, it just kept going you know it had it had legs to something that they didn't see as having really much of any credibility to it yeah i mean look the 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 fake news media uh, really uh came on you know during obviously during the campaign cycle but uh it didn't go away it probably uh exponentially increased when we started this investigation and if, it's funny that none of them hold themselves accountable because literally every talking head and every mainstream media moron um, attacked Devin and I personally or our investigation as baseless. The Nunes memo was full of garbage all over and over and over again. And every one of those individuals, if they read something they wrote or listened to a statement they made, they would find themselves being 100 percent wrong. And, right. and, and journalists with integrity would come back and say, I got that wrong. Instead, they just steamroll past it and allow uh, the American public to be misled because they're counting on these people who they've watched for years to tell them what the heck happened. Right. And that was definitely not something I had ever expected to encounter at, a, at an investigation of that level. And to mislead America in that fashion and is is just disgraceful and all they'll say is oh well you know they'll start barking at the person or it's trump and i'm like what does trump have to do with this you guys said he had something to do with it i'm trying to figure out if that's a yes or no and 
I'm going to give you the evidence. I don't understand why you can't work with us on this. Right. Well, and then, too, when you try to release the report, it's interesting to me because, I mean, you have experience with this when you were prosecuting targets at the top level uh, as far as sources and methods and things like that. So what was the pushback from the IC uh, as far as releasing at least some redacted form of this report? It well, it started before the report, uh, you know, Dave. It started with just to trying to get documents. And, you know, the, the charge was led by Rod Rosenstein, probably the worst deputy attorney general outside of James Comey in DOJ history, and Chris Ray over at the FBI. We sat down, we met with them. We said, hey, guys, this didn't happen on your watch. Um, can you work with us just to get these documents, at least just internally to HIPSI? We're not even releasing anything yet so we can understand it. And they did not like the fact that <clears throat> we were calling out some individuals in their institutions um, to uh, for, for misconduct. And we would show them over and over again that we were right based on our investigation. And they were forced to turn over some documents and it would trickle in and there'd be redactions and they'd say, you can't give it out. And We'd have to just fight just to get to the report. And actually, uh, one of the things we did, the Republicans did while we were in the majority working on this investigation is the minority had no idea we were working on a report. We just went in on weekends and nighttimes and literally through the Christmas holiday to write this thing. Wow. And then when they came back in the new year, they were just flabbergasted that we actually wrote a report. Which, right. which you told them we were going to do and, of course, incorporate yeah. their opinions. That was the agreement. But they just didn't mm-hmm. think we would put it together. And then that led us to the report and then the fight to declassify the report. But we didn't even get everything out of the report that we wanted declassified because of the IC, because of DOJ, because of the FBI. But they didn't have a valid reason, per se. Well, they, to... kept, they kept slinging the uh, you know traditional nonsense of, you're going to you know protect sources of method. People are going to die. And... That's that's a grave statement to make. And having done prosecutions, having protected people's identities, protected assets and relationships abroad so that we could prosecute people in federal court with unclassified information and having targeted people with JSOC. I got it. I said, yeah, I agree with you. I I agree. But as you know, there's a way to do this if you want to do this. And what they failed to do is the job. They knew it was going to show embarrassment to the overall institutions that said we were we are the primitor of of justice and due process, but we're not going to give it to you, Congress, who are oversight um, uh, oversight individuals or right. the group that oversees us. Which I just thought was in, um, I, I just I just I couldn't even logically define how they came to it, except it was an emotional reaction for them to say. Nope, we're going to look bad, so you can't release that. And the media will eat it up when we say, you're going to kill people, you're going to hurt people, you're going to harm our sources and methods. And to this day, no one died, no relationship was ruined, and no method was jeopardized. The only thing that was jeopardized was the integrity of the American judicial system in the IC by the likes of James Comey, uh, you know, and Andy McCabe, and and a few other, you know, Strzok's and Pages of the world. And Um, Brennan. And well, yeah, Yeah. the list goes on. Well, what's frustrating to me too is, you know, having worked in the IC, I, I could understand the importance of the FISA court, 
Yeah. Uh, in terms of prosecuting either domestic, because the domestic people we go after have to have a foreign connection to meet the criteria, right, for FISA. Yeah. But then you have this young guy at the FBI who just recently got off scot-free, who was basically, I don't know how you'd put it, forging evidence yeah, yeah. to be presented to the FISA court to get some of these warrants as far part as crossfire hurricane, right? That's, so, yeah, basically, I think you have it right. It's, you know, having done FISAs as a terrorism prosecutor, I knew, ex I knew <laughs> painstakingly personally how impossible these things were put together how much detail we put in there and it was teams of people and the levels you had to get authorized because you are really using our most sensitive techniques to surveil people overseas or in some cases americans right and and you you know the law rightly so requires that that threshold is very high and when i saw that uh, fisa application for the first time and i saw that and we weren't allowed to talk about it publicly then that it had contained basically uh, uh, verbatim the Steele dossier in it to justify its application's launch and presentation of the FISC. I said to Devin, I said, this is insane. There isn't a prosecutor I know that would say just based on this and some other garbage, we're going to take it to a FISC to surveil a presidential campaign. Right. Um, so that was just a big red flag. And... And I think it just metastasized from there the deeper we looked and every time we peeled away something on source reliability and whatnot that it just uh, it just didn't uh, it just didn't make sense. But to go on to that guy you were talking about, Kleinsmith, I think his name is. Yes. Over at yes. the FBI. Yeah. So, yes, people want accountability in the form of indictments. I totally understand that. Our job at HIPSI, we, we, at Oversight, was just to show fraud and waste and misconduct had happened, which we did, and 17 people were fired, including a director and a deputy director. So that's something. It's a start, but I get it. And there's no way on God's green earth that one mid-level, lower-level guy at the FBI was responsible for the biggest fraud perpetrated on the FISA court in United States history. And so, right. look, maybe Durham has more. I have no insight on that. Um, right. And the fact that that guy can go into federal court, plead guilty, and then walk out scot-free, as opposed to many of my former clients when I was a federal public defender, who did far less criminal conduct, is outrageous. And right. no one cares, because the media, it, I mean, I'm sure, you know, the mainstream morons will hire him and pay him, you know, a million dollars a year to go on their shows now that he's a federal convict, but he helped them. Right. Well, and then what concerns me in the long run is, in terms of national security is it, it potentially provides fodder for those that are against the FISA court and our ability to surveil terrorist threats. You know, I, I mean, David, I think, you, I think you nailed it. Sorry to cut you off, but I think you no. nailed it. The FISA court is essential. We have to have it. I'm, right. As a guy who used to work in you as an Intel pro, we can't do without it. It serves a lot of function. But yes, there's some reform that needs to be made. But yes, this this all allows those people who are on the far side of the extremes to say, we don't need this at all. I've never right. said that. I don't agree with that. And I know you don't either. And most people right. who have worked in this arena don't. It's a critical tool, but it has to be utilized properly. And that's sort of led you, like when you had your involvement with the IC too, to realize, because you worked with IC people when you were prosecuting these tier one targets. Oh, yeah. Oh, 100%. We couldn't do it without them. 
Um, but, but you saw <laughs> that like the average IC person is also about just getting the job done, doing things right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I've told people, you know, the most when they were getting upset about some of the revelations of Snowden, which were bogus because, you know, what his supervisor gave him a password to information he should have never had access to. Um, and, you know, the average NSA person is not just sitting there trying to look up somebody in the United yeah. States. No, they're not doing one, that. One, because they don't have time. And two, they have sort of their leadership has it inculcated into their job that, this is just not right. You don't. You just don't do that. Yeah, um, you're you're totally right. And I was trying to explain to people you should be a little bit more concerned about what Google, Amazon, and some of these other places that buy and track your information, and you know things pop up on your screen without yeah without any prompting from you. However, when you got to the IC, you saw some politicization of some of the you know IC work as it got presented you know, at the higher level. So can you talk about that a little bit also? Sure. So you're, you're hundred percent spot on the folks that sign up to do this work like me and you and, you know, millions of others over the years, we do it because of the mission. We don't do it so we can go home and tell people about it or uh, we do it because we care. And we chose our path to go down a road of serving in a certain capacity. And these folks existed before us and will exist after us. 99% of them. But the frustrating part was, as you nailed it, was the politicization of the of the IC and the DOJ, which I didn't think could happen at the level that we uncovered. And the only reason it happened was because Trump got elected. And some right. people were like, well, I know better than him. And my team is going to save America from him. And I said, where is the legal justification for you usurping a duly elected president of the United States? I served under Obama. I didn't agree with all his decisions on national security, but I got my marching orders and I executed. You did the same. Right. I said, exactly. when I went back to these people and I said, why can't you do it now? They were like, no, no, no. Well, Trump's in power, so it doesn't matter. Uh, right. And it was just a height of hypocrisy. And I said, what the hell are you still doing here? You know, leave right. them. You, you don't have the right to be in a role of this kind of privilege to serve when you can just use politics to justify your meaningless uh, fraud on the at, at the behest of the American people. Um, right. And you're, you're failing the American people that you signed up to serve. Right. And then I wanted to ask you about tech and the IC, you know, the Russian and Chinese information operations. You know, we're so focused on Russia, you know, and then... I mean, Russia has been doing this ever since Reagan, yeah. at least. Yeah. Um, so I, I, when we interviewed John McCain, and <clears throat> I think I even asked him at one point, why does it take Trump to make this a secure, national security issue when it's been going on for since the 80s? Mm-hmm. Um, and China, of course, has been huge on this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, how, se- how severe, in your opinion, is this problem of the Russia and Chinese influence? I mean, the Washington Post, I don't know if they still have it, but they had a page that was sponsored by China. It's a China China page, you know. The people in the IC joke about it all the time. Oh, my God. How how can this happen? Well, it wasn't new to us. You know, President Trump came in and said Russia and China are two of our biggest threats. And Devin had been saying it for literally like almost eight years. Right. Um, He was chairman of House Intel and he was screaming it, but nobody cared. Uh, And... 
it proved out to be true that China and Russia are our biggest threats to our national security because of their intelligence and defense apparatuses are so um, seasoned. You know, they they are good at what they do against us. And <clears throat> President Trump tried to put a focus on it. And it got swallowed by the media because they didn't think, just like they didn't think there was a crisis at the southern border, they didn't think that Russia and China had anything to do with anything, except they did think Russia was in bed with Trump to steal an election, when in reality, the Russians were working with the DOJ, the FBI, and the DNC to steal a presidential election from a Republican, um, which is just wildly I mean, you couldn't right. write you couldn't write sci-fi like that. You couldn't even think of it. And when I was at the IC with Rick and John Ratcliffe running DNI, we continued President Trump's priorities of countering Russia and China, and we shifted the way we collected against targets, and we shifted the resources to be uh, place an emphasis on Russia and China's pr- priorities. And we were shocked that that hadn't been done before we got there. That was. That wasn't news to anyone that this is what the president had said is a priority. You know, all that work that we did got covered up and it's fine. It's not supposed to make the light of day. Right. When we got there, we said, well, what the hell have you guys been doing for two years on Russia and China? And they were just like, well, we didn't, you know, really know we should change stuff. And I was like, based on what? But it was, you would learn it was just people were fighting at all levels to do what they thought was politically expedient. Right. Uh, just shocking. It's remarkable, especially when you consider national securities at stake. Yeah. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you about, oh, the, the Nigeria raid has been broadly misrepresented, I think, in my turn. Like, my, at least as far as what's been available in the media, they try to trash you for, like, usurping the chain of command. But reading between the lines here's this missionary that we want to rescue in nigeria nigeria you have a tight time window to execute any of these operations nigeria had already rogered up to this op happening but when the time window opened they weren't even available so we had to execute without getting the immediate feedback that for something they'd already approved anyhow but I want to hear your side of the story on yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, look, so so I don't do what, you know, others in the media probably have already done, not you, and, and disclose classified information. I'll just say the following, you know, President Trump placed a massive priority on returning hostages, saving them. I was there when I when we briefed him on this specific operation in person. There was only a handful of us in the room. And not surprisingly, he said, go and go now. If it's safe... Uh, or as safe can be for our operators, and it, and we let the pros make that decision, and they did, then you go. And I, you know, in terms of my, I was the head of counterterrorism at the time, so I had for the White House, so hostage portfolio was on my team's um, desk. And so obviously we were involved. And I just gently reminded uh, people who were principals at the time, I said, I can't give you an order, but I can remind you what the commander in chief said. Uh, to do. So if you don't want to do it, why don't you get on the phone and call him instead of contravening an order from the president of the United States? That didn't seem to land well with them, but I didn't care about their feelings. I cared about following the chain of command 
and making sure this kid didn't go into Boko Haram custody for the next five years. Right. Um, so, or worse, yeah. Or worse, yeah. died or tortured yeah. or, you know, right. yeah, terrible, as you know, terrible things happen to some of these individuals um, who, who go over and do work on behalf of the U.S. or religion or what have you. And thanks to our awesome, you know, tier one guys, in and out, win for America, and this kid comes home. And right. They're still writing nonsense People are complaining about, about it. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, That's okay, remarkable. It is. It's just, it's just bruised, it's bruised egos who right. could not believe that, you know, they were not, they, they were not successful in, in impeding President Trump's direction. Right. Yeah. And that's, I mean, we had that frustration. I mean, in Afghanistan, you're dealing with all these different countries. They have all different laws. Uh, for executing or going after people like the Brits. We were always scared if the Brits captured someone because by law they couldn't share any of the information. Trying to get that stuff. Oh man. I remember that. So another big push you had towards the end was separating NSA and cyber command as two separate entities and so anyone that's worked in the IC, I think, finds that of interest. Mm -hmm. I know for me, my only concern with doing that is just creating another sort of higher mm -hmm. hierarchy of some sort, which tends to be a money waste in some ways. And then, you know, a whole command element. And, you know, it's a reason I think Mattis had uh, talked them into getting rid of Joint Forces Command because it was just too redundant and a big mm -hmm. waste of, of money ultimately. But you you have some practical reasons why you think that they should be split, though. Yeah, and it's fun to be able to talk about it with someone like you who actually understands this. Because <laughs> um, it was, you know, we got over there and we said, well, we looked at the statutes and the law that Congress had passed years ago, and AAC Solik being the service secretary is a perfect example over SOCOM. And we said, well, this is the law. Why isn't the, uh, uh, the CG for SOCOM reporting to the ASD Solik as his service secretary? It's what Congress passed and the president signed into law. Right. Um, and that, I think that preceded Trump. It's not that he yeah. put it in. It was just on the right. books for years. And I said, why aren't we following this? And right. it would turn out that it was, you know, a, 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 a sort of a uh, contest between people who wanted to keep power versus give it up. And the whole point of civilian leadership, which is why Congress passed this law, is because civilian oversight of our military, especially our special operations, should be to the service secretary. And so we implemented that, but it was a, it was a dogfight just, oh, yeah. just to put the law into effect. So fast forward to uh, the NSA cybercomp thing. Again, that is a statute that was passed uh, by Congress and signed by, I think, President Obama, if I'm not mistaken. I think so. Yeah. And it just had never been implemented. We were like, the law says you have to do all these things to split the two. Let's start the process of doing all those things, meeting the requirements, informing Congress and the president that we're doing this, and that at some point in the future, it will happen. But from a, from a sort of justification as to why we thought that was the right idea, I don't believe that NSA should be led by a four-star general officer, flag officer. Right. I think that's horrendous right. um, to put the, our um, one of our head intel collection agencies in the power of the military, I think is reckless. 
And Congress agreed and they saw that. And so I'm also wary of creating another combatant command. Um, You know, we don't want that type of nature either. But the reality of how NSA and Cybercom nest is and who they're manning is um, there is a way to have the military provide oversight over the Cybercom portion of it. But the, the NSA portion of it, we strongly felt should have a civilian reporting to the president. Yes. Not as not a flag officer reporting to the chairman and the secretary of defense because you just crushed the chain of command so that you can own the monopoly around NSA. And Secretary Miller and I just agreed that that was not what A, the law wanted and what we saw was the in the best interest of, of, of America. So that's why right. we went that route. No, that's a great idea. And I guess the only other problem I can think of is it's, I think originally when civilians headed the CIA and things like that, it was, it was good because I think the presidents and Congress realized that this person needs to be, have some familiarity with their mission and how they operate. But over time it had become more political than it was, Mm how to run the place, so to speak. And that's all my only fear with some of these places becoming civilian control is it's mm-hmm. going to continue to be some political appointee that has, yeah. is puts some sort of political objective of who puts them in place ahead of what the mission is maybe, so to speak. But that doesn't mean it shouldn't be a civilian though. You're totally yeah. right. It, and It just and needs after, to be done the right way. Yeah. Exactly. You need the right leadership who's not going to politicize the industry. And and after the last few years, I, I understand why people are wary of that. Um, but, uh, you know, if we had to do it all over again, I think we would have placed um, many different individuals in the principal level positions than the right. ones that we did. Well, and then the NSA's missions become so huge and the cyber command mission, once you introduce cyber warfare, yeah, really necessitates the separation of the two. I think, like you said, um, yeah, it's it, it's just it's, too big of an animal. Yeah, absolutely. It's absolutely something that we've got to think about. So, what other issues are there with the government from your experience that you glean that you wish would change or thinks needs to be changed? Well, I think we've talked about some of them, but the main thing is. If you, if you sign up to serve, and it's a privilege to do that, and you are saying on behalf of the United States, I'm going to execute my mission, whatever that is, Intel, National Security, Defense, Ag, whatever, um, you have to remember that you signed up to serve the American people. That institution, you didn't sign up for that institution to serve you and your political interests. I was able to easily set aside my political beliefs under Obama. I served three of his attorneys general. Right. I had no problem with it. I thought he was wrong on Benghazi, and I was the lead prosecutor for Benghazi for Maine Justice. But right. once I got our marching orders, I, I made my position known to leadership. Leadership made right. a decision, and we went with it. I didn't leak right. it to the media. Right. I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't call some fox or whoever and say, hey, put me on TV. Right, I said, exactly. These are, these are our marching orders. And people just lost their minds when Trump got elected, and they thought that their little crew of people at each respective agency could commandeer the system for their own benefit because they thought 
they could redefine how they serve the American public. And, and that's just not the way it works. If you right. can't do that, if you can't sign up to serve for what you s signed up for, then leave. No one's, right. it's not forced labor. Uh, and yeah. there's, a, there's a thousand people that probably want your job who would do it way better than you. Right. But I don't know how you get that mentality out. It's so far buried in these institutions that, um, well, there is a way we have to win in 2024 and then root them out. But, uh, well, you know, there's a microcosm of that I experienced when uh, I was at the DIA. I remember there were people talking about, you know, there's NCTC, which is the National Counterterrorism Center, which is what who you worked hand in hand with do, mm -hmm. when you were at SOCOM. And then there's also the Defense Counterterrorism Center, yeah. which is sort of a subset of that. And the civilians that counterparts I worked with uh, said that, you know, there was a lot of there were issues with civilians that went to work there. They weren't necessarily happy with working there. So and then I had moved a couple of the Marine billets over there and then started quizzing them like, what is it that people don't like about it? And what it came down to was it was too military like mm. for some of these civilians where the mission was always operational. It meant that sometimes you had to stay late. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. it was almost like a deployment in a way, although you're <laughs> obviously not going anywhere. But yeah. uh, you're deployed to a skiff. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> and, and so that was appeared to me, at, at least, as the genesis of this dislike for this work. And I thought, good God, what the, when you took a job in the intelligence community, what did you think you were going to be doing? Right. You know? It's and, not a nine to five. <laughs> Uh, I think my first Iraq tour was in Fallujah doing a training in Iraqi oh, battalion. Oof. So I had firsthand experience of what it was like to be a grunt, you know. So <laughs> fast forward to 2011 and John Waters and I had met in Afghanistan. We were, were working in the Division G2 on Leatherneck. To a lot of our young analysts, it felt like, wow, they're on the front lines or something. But it was hard to motivate them to do the mission at hand, reading all the message traffic and all that. And I had to, like, reinforce to them, I'm like, although you may not see it every day, what you do can potentially have an impact mm -hmm. and save a life out here. Um, and these, there's, you know, Marine soldiers, you know, people from any service every day risking their life to get, run over an ID or a you know, the pressure plates were huge on the foot patrols and stuff in Afghanistan. I mean, you got to keep that in your mind to motivate you. Like, you know, if I can just do 12 hours a day, six, I only made them do that six days a week. I'm that's the least you can do for these guys who sometimes go, you know, days without sleep, you know. No, it's incumbent upon good leaders like you like you just outlined um, your your task in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's incumbent upon good leaders in the IC and in DOD to remind their teams and lay out what the greater mission set is and show them how their work falls into that. And many people fail at that. <laughs> You have to remind these folks who haven't been in as long as you have or had the roles you've had the privilege of having to say, no, your tear line, your IIR, your, you know, intel analysis of this individual's interrogation matters. And here's where it fits in. And once you, what I learned, like I'm sure you did, once you took some time, and most leaders don't, but once you took some time to do that, man, you could motivate people overnight. Right. Because- 
they had to be shown that they didn't they didn't know that and and look as you know nine percent of our military are war fighters right 91 support the mission like i did and that's that's a lot of people millions of people that don't pull out a pistol or a long gun downrange but that's not the 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 crux of the military's work it's the it's the end point that gets all the the jazz and exactly. I get, and I understand why. Right. But there's so much behind the tip of the spear and it's in and we need more leaders like you outlined the work you did to right. to show the young folks that sign up to do that. Well, another aspect to this too and you brought it up somewhat with your dad because he living in, in Uganda and having to experience Idi Amin um I spent 12 years. I didn't know until I retired. I'm not looking at my uh, <laughs> uh, detachment papers. I spent 12 years overseas. Wow. So when I, uh, and I think I retired the same year that Trump got elected, or he got elected a little after I retired. And I'm visiting John at law school in Iowa, and he's he talks me into going to the, there's this resistance writers group thing going on at the theater there and people are just complaining (sighs) starting a a lot of this stuff about how oppressed and uh, people are mistreated here and I'm just reflecting on everywhere I've been in the world and then of course history as well thinking you know because when I lived overseas for 12 years it just reminded me there is no place in the world regardless of what my skin color and ethnicity or anything was that I would rather live than the United States of America. Yeah. Because that, there isn't anywhere in the world that I had been where regardless of those criteria that you at least had equal opportunity to anyone regardless of, of what your background was. No, that's what my mother and father would tell you. I mean, my mom was wearing saris to the grocery store until until <laughs> I was a teenager. You know, at the right. time I was like, oh my God. But, you know, in retrospect, I was like, thanks for yeah. doing that. Um, right. And they'll tell you, my mom and dad, like, you know, in what universe could a first generation Indian American kid end up running counterterrorism and in the Oval Office talking to the president of the United States and <laughs> right. bring his parents in there to sit in the seat? You know, <laughs> right. like, it's unheard of. It's ridiculous. It's a fairy tale. It's not. Right. It's not in America. And that's right. exactly what they taught us growing up. And uh, I think there's similarities between the Indian culture and the American one. So it's a good place to fold that in and realize that, yeah, you can, you can do that here, right? but you can't do it almost anywhere else. Right. Exactly. Absolutely. Well, Cash, you've spent a great deal of your personal time with us. I, I wanted to greatly thank you for being here today and giving us your side of the coin, so to speak which I doesn't get heard often enough, I, I suppose. <laughs> no, you're too kind. Um, I mean, I was excited when you guys set this up to have a, an educated uh, crew of people who actually know what they're talking about. Give me time to, uh, to, to discuss some of, uh, some of the things I did. But uh, as I always say, uh, you know, you and David and John, you know, uh, lap us in terms of the, uh, the service you did to the country. So people need to remember to thank you guys uh, along the way as well. Well, thank you to our audience for joining us today. And today, that was Hot Wash. Thank you. Thanks very much, guys. <laughs>